0: Welcome to the Qalam Institute podcast. You're listening to Lives of the Prophets by Mufti Hussain Kamani. Imagine spending two weeks, every day, morning and evening, with the Prophet That's the vision behind Sirah Intensive. Every year, over a hundred people from all over the world come together to spend two weeks immersed in learning about the life and character of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad Sign up and get more information at sirahintensive.com. That's s e e r a h intensive.com. Bismillah ar-rahman ar-rahim. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah wa kafaa wa salamun ala ibadihi alladhi nastafa. Khususan ala sayyidir rusul wa khatimil anbiya wa ala alihi al-askiya wa ashabihi al-atqiya Last week in our class we covered the story of Sayyidina Shith alayhi salam. Sayyidina Sayyidina Shith alayhi salam was the second prophet sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He was the direct descendant and son of Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam. We covered until the point where Sayyidina Sheith Ali salam passed away. After he passed away, not his son, his grandson, but his great-grandson is a very significant person. His name is Mahlail. Some, say, some refer to his name as Mahlail, while others refer to him as Mahlail. Which is just a a grammatical difference. Now, the reason why he's a significant person is because there is a lot of history attributed to his great-grandson. So, for example, some scholars, some historians mention that he is kind of like the founder of Persia, the Persian area. And he was the first person to also um, cut trees. He is known as being the person to actually first and foremost establish cities. He established two famous cities. um, From them being... um, Babylon, which we know in Arabic as Babul, and the other being the city of Sus. Similarly, he is known for being the person, Imam Tabari says, the first person to extract metal from the earth. So therefore, extracting metal from the earth gave him the ability to now build, so he started building. And he was also the one who um, established uh, um, farming and taught people there that skill as well, so there are many things that he brings now, Mahla'il is kind of like a game changer, he's someone who's establishing cities um, developing industries so he becomes a very important person now, from Mahla'il's children comes a son of his, not directly a son but from his grandchildren comes a son of his by the name of Ukhnukh, some refer to him as Ukhnukh while others refer to him as Khunukh some refer to him as Ukhnu and others refer to him as Khunukh the Quran refers to him as Sayyidina Idris Alayhis Salam Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala mentions his name in the, name of the Quran Wa dhkur kitabi Idris innahu kana siddiqan nabiyya in Surah Maryam and then in Surah Anbiya Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala mentions him a second time Wa Isma'ila wa Idris wa dal kifl, min al-sabirin So these are two places in the Quran where Sayyidina Idris is mentioned by name. Now, according to most historians, his birth name was not Idris, rather it was Khunukh or Ukhnukh and all the other opinions that I shared. And that is from the Suryani language. However, the Qur'an references him as Idris. Now, what does Idris mean? So the scholars again differ in opinion on where the origin of the word Idris comes. Some scholars say that he is called Idris because he was someone with very sharp memory. He was someone who read a lot. And it is known regarding him that he had memorized the scrolls that were revealed to Sayyidina Adam a.s. He had also memorized the scrolls that were revealed to Sayyidina Ashith And the revelation that had been sent down to him, according to the hadith of Abu Dharag Fari an, 30 scrolls, he had also memorized them. So, because of this memorizing of his, he was known as Idris, and you can notice in the word Idris, the core letters Darasa are there, which means to read, Darasa Yadurusu means to study. Uh, A place of study is called Madrasa, where studying takes place. Duru's referred to as lectures and classes as well. Now, another group of scholars, they say that he is called Idris, because he was the first person to write, and we're going to come to this in a moment, Ibn Ishaq says, the first person to write in the history of mankind was Sayyidina Idris alayhi salam, And this is very important because he teaches people how to draw and how to write, How to act. when we say writing, it's not referring to writing full languages, but just um, lines and symbols. He starts off this, uh, this knowledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends it to the world through him. And I'll come back to that later on. Now those people who say that Idris is actually an Arabic name, and they say that Idris is Idris because of the whole darasa and it comes from the Arabic word which means to study, there are some grammarian scholars who have an issue with this, and they refuse to accept this. The reason why they refuse to accept this is because they say, that in the Arabic language, nouns are of two categories. Either they are declinable or indeclinable, or in Arabic we refer to them as sarf, munsarif, and ghayr munsarif. Munsarif is a declinable verb, and a ghayr munsarif is an indeclinable verb. What the, the difference between both is that the indeclinable verbs have restrictions when it comes to voweling. So for example, an indeclinable verb can never have a kasra. You know the E sound? E, kasra, rajulin, it can never have that. So an example of an indeclinable verb is Adam. The word Adam can never have a kasra or a zere, as we say in Persian. It can never have it, it's impossible. Anyone that ever says Adami, they're wrong, that's not possible. Okay? It cannot have a qasra because it's an indeclinable verb. It has restrictions. It can only have a fatha, or it can have a dhamma. Similarly, an indeclinable verb can never come with a double a double vowel. So you know the an, un, in, double fatha, double dhamma, double kasra. The word Adam can never have that. So if anyone ever shows you the word Adam with two fatha's on there, or two qasras or two dhamma's, what does that tell you? There's something wrong with that person's grammar because that's not possible. The Arabic grammar doesn't allow that. So, once you understand that, the scholars, they say that Idris is not a declinable verb, it's an indeclinable word. It's not a declinable word, it's an indeclinable it's غَيْرْ مُنْصَرِفْ um, And the reason for this is because, there are nine causes of a, of a word being considered as indeclinable. There are nine causes, the nine asbab of غَيْرْ مَنْصَرِفْ okay? for, um, for, for a word to be considered indeclinable. And all prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, their names are indeclinable except for seven. There are only seven prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whose names are, they're, they're declinable, which means they can have a full change in them. They can have the fathah Dhamma, Qasra, double Fatha, double Dhamma, double kasra. And what are those seven names? Muhammad, Salih, Shu'ayb, Hud, Nuh, Lut, and Sheith Ali Him. These are the seven names that are declinable, which means they are munsarif. They can fully take a change in them. All other prophets' names are ghayr Sarf. You guys understand that? Okay. I'll just add one thing. Since we're talking about prophets, why not talk about angels? All angels' names are also indeclinable except for three. There are only There are seven prophets, and how many angels? Three. Malik, Munkar, and Nakir these are the only three names that are munsarif, which means they can, they can fully take their, um, the voweling, like I mentioned earlier on. Now another added point for those of you who appreciate the Arabic language and have an understanding for it, all names that I mentioned earlier on right now that are ghayr munsarif, all the angels and all the prophets, minus the ten that I just listed, the three angels and the seven prophets, minus them, the rest of the names, the two causes that make them ghayr munsarif are, alam and ujum, Right? Alam and Ujum, these two things. What does that mean? Alam means it's a name, and Ujma means that it's a foreign word. Alam means it's a name, and Ujma means it's a foreign word. And because it's a foreign word, that makes it indeclinable. Now the reason why all of this matters, by the way, the only exclusion to that is a Ridwan is غير um, منصرف because it's a name and it has Zaidatan at the end. But except for that, all the other names are Alam, which means a name, and Ujmah means it's a, foreign, it's a foreign word. Now why does all of this matter? You're probably wondering why I'm talking about Arabic grammar right now. The reason is because if you decide to say Idris as an Arabic language, then in order for it to be considered indeclinable, there must be two causes there, and if you remove the Ujmah, which means it's not foreign anymore, how many causes are left? One, which means that this has to be one of those seven names. And we know that it's not one of those seven names because the, the scholars and historians have always referred to it as being a foreign word. They refer to it as غير من therefore considering it to be ujma. So the alam of Rahmatullahi he engages in this discussion in great detail in his tafsir when he comes to the word Idris, refuting those people who claim that the word Idris is a part of the Arabic language. But then why is it that Idris is referred to as, why is he called Idris? So then he himself says maybe it's possible because the word Idris may mean in their language, something similar to reading and someone who studies a lot. Therefore, um, that's why they get that idea of making the connection between both. There's a narration from Abu Dhar al-Ghifari it's, weak, it's a weak one, but it is a narration that the Prophet said that there are four Prophets who are sent who were Suriyani. Adam Sheet Idris and Nuh These are the four Prophets of Allah that are sent that are Suriyani. Now after Nuh the geography, the lineage, the people, the Prophets come to, it takes a big turn, it takes a big change. Sayyidina Hud and other Prophets come later on. So here we're noticing that the four Prophets that are Suriyani are Sayyidina Adam um, his son Sheet his And um, then from his children, Idris Alayhi salam, and final and last is um, Nuh Alayhi Salaam. Now, some people, they confuse Idris Alayhi Salaam for a person by the name of Hurmus. Hurmus Al-Harami. And the reason why they make this confusion, Al-Harama, sorry. Is the reason why they make this confusion is because... As a part of Idris salam's specialities and the things that he delivers to people, is that he teaches people the understanding of stars, astrology. He introduces them to the science of astrology, stars, reading them, understanding them. And stars were very important for humans, and the reason was because it was the only way they were able to navigate themselves. The sun doesn't help them navigate; the stars are what help them navigate, going from one town to another. And Idris Ali salam, he himself traveled. There are, because his father. from his grandfather was Mahlail, who established Babylon. He also grew up there, spent a good portion of his life there. So when he migrated from there, he migrated from there to Egypt. His family initially wasn't too happy about it, but when he made the migration, and they came to Egypt, and they saw the river Nile, they became very happy, because there was water flowing there, and there was a good chance of them living there as well. So when he migrated, he used this skill of his to migrate from one place to another place. So because he was um, such an important person, and possibly even the founder of astronomy and the science of navigating by using the stars, they, they refer to him as Hormuz. Because Hormuz is also listed amongst the founding forefathers of astronomy. Not the founder, but the founding forefathers, as amongst the founders. Now, the reason why this is problematic of accepting Hurmus as being Sayyidina Idris is because there are certain traditions that link back to Hurmus that are not suitable for a Prophet. And we know that whether um, your Hurmus is whoever he is, but we know certain things about Prophets of Allah, that they are upright people, that they do not lie, they are truthful people, they only promote peace. And we discuss all of these things in the introductory discussions when we set the foundation down of what is a Prophet. So anyone that we meet and they do not meet that tradition, then there's a problem going to be there. So Idris Salam, according to most scholars again, is not the Hurmus, which astronomers refer to when they talk about their founding uh, forefathers. Now the second issue that comes up is, when did Idris Salam come to the world? According to the most common opinion, like I just shared with you right now, Idris Salam came between Ali Salam and Nuh Salam. That's the most common opinion. However, there's a second opinion that states that Idris Salam was actually from Banu Israel, he was from the children of Ya'qub Aleyhissalam, and they kind of push his timeline down after Ismail Aleyhissalam. And the reason why this happens is because of two reasons. Firstly, because of the ayah wa Ismaila wa wa In this ayah, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala mentions three people: Ismail Aleyhissalam, who was a son of Ibrahim Aleyhissalam, um, Idris Aleyhissalam, and dhulkifl now, who is Dhul-Kifl? Is he a prophet or not? Was he a pious person? Was he a judge? What's his reality? Maybe we'll discuss that at another time. But since Idris name is mentioned, after Ismail and before Dul kifl there's this assumption that this must be the sequence of their coming to the world as well. And after Ismail before Dhul-Kifl, therefore he must be one of the prophets of Banu Israel. The second reasoning some people they give is because in the famous narration that you can find in Sahih Al-Bukhari and also in Sahih Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ when he went on the Night of Ascension, he went to the different heavens and met different prophets there. Now, each prophet greeted him in a very unique way. Marhaban bi salih, wa that um um welcoming to a um a beloved brother and a um bi a a, a, a a righteous brother, wa nabiyan and a righteous prophet. Except for two prophets, Ibrahim ﷺ and Adam ﷺ referred to the Prophet as a pious son, Ibn, instead of Akh, which word did they use? Ibn, and Nabi and Salih. So because Adam a.s. referred to the Prophet as Ibn, that tells us that Adam a.s. is his father, as we all know he's the father of all of mankind. And Ibrahim a.s. also referred to the Prophet wasallam as Ibn. So now that you establish that, when you look at the other Prophets that the Prophet wasallam met, what you notice is that they were all from Banu Israel, Yahya a.s. Isa alayhi salam, Idris السلام, Harun alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam. Right? All these are the prophets, and then Idris alayhi salam is also there. So they're establishing that all the other prophets were Banu Israel. Therefore, that's when they refer to the prophet; they call him Akhin Saleh. What do they call him? Brother. Okay. And then you have Adam alayhi salam and Ibrahim alayhi salam, who we know are not from Banu Israel by consensus, and they refer to the prophet as Ibn, their son. So why is it that Idris referred to the Prophet as Akhun Saleh? You guys understand the argument? That's the second argument they present. So the answer to this is, the scholars, they say, that the reason why he referred to him as Akhun Saleh maybe as... um, Tawadu'an, to humble himself in front of the prophet sallallahu adam alayhis salam was obviously the father of mankind so anyone that comes after him is going to be a brother and ibrahim alayhis salam specifically made that dua for the prophet ﷺ's arrival in the world therefore he's taking those bragging rights and saying my pious son you know cuz he's the one who made the dua for him As for Idris he referred to him as Akhin Saleh as a humbling brother of his as opposed to referring to him as a father. So that's the second argument there, and like I mentioned earlier, most historians have mentioned that Idris was not from Banu Israel, rather he came after Adam and before Nuh as I mentioned. Now what are some things that are specific to Idris as I mentioned earlier on, Ibn Ishaq says that he is the first person, أَوَّلُ مَنْ بالقلم, He is the first person to write. And Ibn Ishaq also says one thing interesting, as a part of that same tradition, he captures a very interesting point. He says that he was the first person to write with the pen, and Idris also lived with Adam for 300 years. Now everyone must be raising the eyebrows. What? how can you live with Adam for 300 years? when we just said right now, that he was generations after salam, which also means he's generations after Adam And he's also a prophet of Allah, and you know, how does this all make sense? Because right now in your mind, you're thinking when I say Idris way later on, you're not thinking of during Adam And not just one or two days or a few hours, how long did we say? Ibn Ishaq says 380 years. He lived almost 400 years, if you want to say 380 years. Sorry, not 380, 308 years. Um, roughly 300 years after Adam Ali, he lived with Adam Ali Salam. He lived with Adam Ali Salam for 300 years. So the answer to this is also somewhat easy. If you recall, when we talked about Adam Ali Salam's life, we explained that he lived hundreds of years. What did we say? He lived for how long? Hundreds of years. And amongst his kids, how many children did he have altogether? 40 kids, okay, Adam had 40 children, okay, and they were in 20 pairs, so each pair was two children, like this he had 40 kids. Now from those 40 kids, when they reached age, whatever the suitable age was for them to get married, in our community it's 25, let's say this guy's bumped it up to 50. When they reached that age, what were they going to do? Get married. So the generations lived the same, they lived longer lives, but they had the opportunity to live with their grandfathers much longer. Does that make sense to you guys? So, each person, each human being still gets married when they reach the age of maturity. After they reach the age of maturity, it's time for them to get married, they would go and get married. But because their grandfathers lived such long lives, therefore they thought they met so many more of their grandchildren. They would meet, let's say for example, if, Adam, if Nuh lived a thousand years, how many of his grandchildren is it very probable that he met? How many generations? 10? Would you guys, at least, I mean like 10-15 of them, he must have easily bumped into 10-15 of them. Um, and and this, is, uh, this is an honor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if you look at it from that perspective, you understand that this is nothing ba'id or nothing far-fetched that Idris salam did not have the opportunity to live with, um, his, with the father of all of mankind, Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam. And Ibn Ishaq actually mentions this, he says he was the first person to write with the pen, and he also lived with his father, uh, Adam alayhi salam, for 300 years. Ibn Wahab while talking about Idris Alayhi salam sorry not Ibn Wahhab. Wahab says while talking about Idris Alayhi salam that he was the first person to write and he was the first person to who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse bismillahir rahmanir rahim and similarly he says after the bismillahir rahmanir rahim it was written in the scribe that was revealed to him Allahu annahu la ilaha illahu wal malaikatu wa ulul ilmi qaimam bil qist لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا هُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ which is a famous ayah in the um, third juz' of the Qur'an of Surah Al-Imran. So this was also an ayah that was revealed to him, an ayah of the Qur'an that was similarly revealed to him as well. And Wahab says that similarly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed onto him the alphabet. Now the part of the alphabet being revealed to him is something interesting. Does that mean he knew how to write the alphabet? Does that mean he understood the concept of the alphabet? Again, that's something that's uh, a lot of detail that we can discuss another time. Now, another thing from um, Sayyidina Idris' s time is that some historians have said that it was during his lifetime that the incident of Harut and Marut happened. What's the city's name? B. Babil. Where was Idris from? He was from Babel as well. Harut and Marut. And the reason why they make this claim is because there are two opinions on this issue, by the way. When did this happen? Some say it happened during Idris, alayhi salam's time, while another group of scholars, they say it happened after Sulaiman, alayhi salam's time, because the ayat of the Quran are talking about that. Now... Those who say that it happened during Idris s time, they say the reason this incident happened, for those of you who are not aware, this is a famous narration. That, that First of all, the Qur'an makes reference to it. And the commentary of that reference in the Qur'an is by Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal He mentions it in his Musnad, that what happened was that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam Alayhi Salam. A group of angels said, Ya Allah, we are more obedient than Adam, so why have you created him? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explained that it is his ability to sin, yet refraining from it, you know, the human beings, that's why we were created. We have the ability to sin, that's what makes us different from angels. That angels do not have the ability to sin, the human beings and the jinn do have the ability to sin. The jinns ended up annihilating each other due to war, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent um, the human beings down then. And we talked about all of this earlier on in the introductory classes. Now, these angels objected and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to the angels that select two of you to be sent to the earth. And the two that were selected were Harut and Marut. And they came to Babylon, Babylon, And these two angels they come down and they are roaming the earth worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala until they meet this very beautiful girl and they try to strike conversation with her and then she refuses to speak to them until they worship an idol, and they refuse, and then they see her a few days later, and then they try to speak to her again, she refuses to speak to them until they kill a child that was with her, um, they said no way we're going to kill the child and then she left and then a, f- a few days later they saw her again and this time she had a bottle in her hand and they wanted to speak to her and she said I won't speak to you until you um, consume some of this alcohol that I have and they then consumed the alcohol which made them intoxicated which then led them to killing the child which led them to committing zina which led them to making shirk and therefore being punished by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala offered them the punishment of the world of the hereafter and they chose the punishment of the world so that's the summary of Imam Ahmad bin Muhammad rahmatullahi alayhi's, narration regarding Harut and Marut. So some historians they say that this incident actually happened during Idris alayhi salam's time. It's because their objection was during Adam alayhi salam's creation, during the first generation that lived. So why would it happen during Sulaiman alayhi salam's time if human beings have been alive since Adam salam's time? Okay, that's one argument they make. And secondly, there are some narrations that also support this idea. Now, People are dying during um, Idris alayhi salam's time. Like any human beings, people age, they live, they die. Adam alayhi salam passed away, Sheith alayhi salam passed away. So, when pious people started passing away, like Sheith alayhi salam and his pious followers, if you recall last week I told you guys that Adam alayhi salam's children were divided into two categories those who lived in the plains and those who lived in the mountains. Those who lived in the mountains were the Sheetha and his followers, the pious people, and those who live in the plains were the, the the sinners, those who followed Qabil and his generation, those were the people that lived there, okay. So when the pious people started dying, Shaytan decided to pull a quick one on the people. He said to them that all of these pious people are dying, they were prophets of Allah, they worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so much. The least you owe them is to remember them. So they said, okay, we can easily remember them, that won't be too hard. So then shaitan said to them, he comes in the form of a human being, then how do you expect to remember them unless there is a symbol that reminds you of them? They said, oh, that kind of does make sense, if I have a symbol of him, then I can remember him, kind of like someone who takes a picture of their father while lying in, the, while lying in his coffin. People do that all the time. And you ask them, why are you taking a picture of your father while he's in his coffin? They say, so that I can, so I can remember him, so he also brought this logic to them. They said, well, that's a fair idea, but the problem is, how are we going to draw a picture of somebody? So what Shaitan did was, he said, do you not know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shared with Idris salam the knowledge to draw? How about we learn that knowledge from him and we start drawing their images? Now the knowledge that was sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was such a pure purpose to preserve narr- um, uh, revelation for good purposes, for cause of communication, is now used in such a twisted way to lay the foundation of shirk which will later on lead to worshiping idols, because it starts off with the pictures, then after that they say, you know what? Why draw a picture? We've learned now how to build, because you know that they built these mountains, houses and mountains and they learned the idea of carpentry. So they said, let's use this next skill now. We don't need a 2D printer, we now have 3D printers. And they started using the 3D printers until now they had this new technology and this new product in front of them. And they said, what are we going to do with this new product? So they put it in their, in their houses. Why are you leaving it in the corner of the house? It should be in the most honorable place of the house. And they brought the picture or the idol to the, the, the sculpture of theirs to the, uh, to the most prominent place of the home and they would look at it, and the next generation came and said, why are you looking at it? Why don't you kiss it? Don't you know these were pious people? And they kissed it. And the next generation came and said, What kind of Batamese people are you guys? You're kissing it, you're supposed, to posh, you're supposed to bow down in front of it. And the guy said, No, you can't bow down in front of anyone but Allah. He said, You beuquf, I'm not telling you to bow down to worship it, I'm telling you to bow, bow down to honor it. He said, Oh, that makes sense. I can bow down to honor it. There's nothing haram about that. And they started bowing down to honor until the next generation that came along and said, You know, since we're bowing down anyway, why not make a little tasbih while we're there? And generations like this slowly, slowly trickle down until the idea of idol worshipping comes in. And that's tricky. As it sounds, it is that tricky. That's why the idea of worshipping any other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is something we run away from.